Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this is another episode in our special series on European sovereignty. We are talking this week to Bastian Gigerich, who is the Director of Defence and Military Analysis at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And Bastian leads the team that produces the annual flagship publication, The Military Balance, which looks at the spending of different uh, country, of every single country in the world and how their technology, technological basis is, is being uh, developed. But even more interesting than that, Bastian has spent a lot of time over the last few years thinking about European defence, the transatlantic relationship, and the question of European strategic autonomy. So Bastian, why don't we get straight into the into the meat of this? Lots of people talk about how the European, how European countries are free riding on the United States, that they're dependent on, on the US um, in military terms. How would you characterize the relationship? What uh, do you think is the extent of European dependence? Yeah, sure, Mark. Uh, thank you very much. And, and thanks for having me on, on the podcast. It's, it's a real pleasure. I think, you know, when we look at this relationship, People people get confused a little bit about about the realities and and even some of the numbers involved. We recently looked at much of the uh, U.S. spending is actually driven to European security and defense, and we got to a figure that is somewhere between five to six percent of the U.S. defense budget. So that puts that into perspective. That's about that's still a lot of money. That's still thirty billion dollars a year, but it puts it into perspective. Um, uh, as as an as an effort in the overall U.S. posture that is concerned with a lot of things in addition to European security, and if you then look at European security and think about well, what 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 would it mean for EU member states to be strategically autonomous? I don't think it's about sovereignty so much as it's about autonomy uh, in this field. And I think, to me, autonomy really means three things. It means decision making. It means uh, capability when we're talking about defense, and it means defense industrial capacity to provide those capabilities. And I think if we look at those angles, uh, I think we get a slightly better better handle and a slightly more nuanced picture of, of the relationship. Because I think, you know, if you look at defense industry, for example, uh, I, I think, you know, we have to acknowledge that the components that make up the industrial capability to deliver the high and low end capabilities that Europe needs, they are scattered across Europe. Okay, that's the reality. But you know, if we put our mind to it and if we get organized as Europeans, I have very little doubt that between us, uh, EU member states would have the ability to supply most, if not all, of their military capability needs. So it already looks a little bit different. Um, and in terms of decision-making power, I think we've got the structures, we've got we've got all the institutions we need. It's just a question of do we have the will to actually uh, use this? And that's, of course, important. All this military power, soft power, all of that is relatively useless unless you actually uh, uh, make these capabilities believable. And believable means they must be available, they must be trained, they must be exercised, and there must be the political will 
to use them. Otherwise, you don't really have decision-making autonomy. And then the last bit is, of course, military capability. And that's probably where the dependency is actually you know, most pronounced, the dependency on, on the U.S. for military enablers, uh, uh, for, for capacity or capability that Europeans do not yet have. Um, uh, I think it's, it should be an effort that Europe looks uh, at quite seriously. You know, what can we do over the next 10 years or so uh, to make sure uh, we move in the direction of strategic autonomy uh, at a time when uh, the U.S. as a strategic partner and ally uh, uh, is putting some doubt uh, on the robustness of that commitment? I think it would be in our interest to, to uh, redouble our efforts to, to uh, move in the direction of strategic autonomy. So if we um, try and uh, go a bit deeper under those three headings, um, let's maybe go start with this defense capabilities question. What do you think the, the biggest shortfalls are? I mean, uh, you know, of course, the question then immediately becomes the biggest shortfalls measured against, against what? And, and I think um, a bit more work is needed at this point to understand what the upper level of ambition of the EU global strategy, as it was uh, written up in 2016, what that upper limit is when it talks about protecting uh, uh, European EU citizens, when it when it moves the conversation into the realm of territorial defence without spelling out what that really means. But if we take that seriously, uh, we need to we need to look at uh, capability gaps of the domains of air, land, sea, and including cyber as well. So if we look at that uh, for air, um, uh, there clearly is still uh, a, a shortfall, although it's not as pronounced as it used to be in air mobility. Um, there certainly is a shortfall in what in military terms you would call air superiority, so uh, uh, air combat capability, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance uh, platforms, uh, you know, those are those are big ticket items uh, that one could work on. Uh, you know, in the naval space, um, there's maritime situational awareness. There is uh, anti-submarine warfare, which is which is which has regained um, uh, importance. And uh, then there's a whole uh, layer of integrated air and missile defense, ground combat, ground forces, land forces. There really is just the need for um, a relatively comprehensive shall we say, modernization, re-equipment uh, uh, program across a lot of land platforms, across a lot of countries, really, you're talking about manned vehicles, but then looking towards the future, obviously, also unmanned vehicles. So that's a, that's a fairly large agenda. And I think what we have to recognize is actually that these that these gaps, are, they are, I think, understood and, and recognized. So I'm not telling you anything um, that would surprise uh, uh, people, because, frankly, these things are reflected in the capability planning processes in member states, they are reflected in the thinking that the European Defence Agency is putting forward. So it's really a case of, as Europeans, actually doing what we signed up rather than halfway through, move the goalpost and, and then focus on something else. And now we have a stronger dynamic uh, supporting these steps. So I am, while I'm not, uh, uh, you know, a massive optimist when it comes to these processes or these new EU initiatives, I think uh, I'm moderately hopeful that this time we'll make a, a larger step forward than we did in, uh, you know, the previous incarnations of these ideas. And how much, if you had to put a price tag on all of those different things, is that something that you've looked at? How much it would cost to actually um, do everything that you talked about? Well, we're, we're actually in the 
in the planning stages of a study that would do precisely that. It's not ready yet. We hope to have it ready for, uh, for you know, in time for the 70th anniversary of, of NATO next spring, um, where we where we go through this and actually put price tags on on everything. And and uh, the ideal, of course, would be to come up with one nice number that uh, that tells us how to solve all these problems. But I think you know, I mean, if let's just stick with with the ambitions that we have for the moment. If if we, I don't really like the 2% benchmark, the 2% of GDP uh, spending on defense benchmark, but if we just stick with that, that means in Europe, you know, if, you, if, we, if we were to move to that, if we were to achieve that, that's an additional, you know, almost $100 billion every year uh, to, be, to be spent on, on defense. That gets you a lot. Some of the uh, holes in some of the larger member states, uh, particularly Germany, uh, where if we are honest with ourselves, those are the countries where where you would really move the needle um, in a significant way. Um, and I think you know that let's let's start with that. So I think it's important to to recognize that when we talk about closing these gaps, we're talking about uh, an ambition that uh, that will that will keep us busy busy throughout the 2020s all the way to 2030. Uh, this is not something where you simply, you know, buy a lot of expensive equipment, put it in the parking lot or, or on some airfield and, and you're done. I mean, there's a process behind it and not just the procurement. This needs to be understood that this is something that will take some time. There isn't really a quick fix here. There isn't really the answer that, that President Trump suggest there is uh, if we just all spend even more than that uh, we could fix these problems in in two or three years it will take some time and to me it is a question whether we will have the patience uh, to see this through and potential that pesco brings there will be a moment when that initial dynamic that we're now in currently this year when that dies off and these projects will not immediately deliver results and the question then is is there enough political leadership is there enough political will to push it through that potential valley of death and get to a point where we have the patience to say, okay, we've started something here. We need to see this through. We need to, we need to work towards these longer-term goals. Uh, I think if we can achieve that, we'll have a chance to get more strategic autonomy at the end of that process. And one of the puzzling things to many people is the fact that, you know, the only real... Um, uh, peer competitor or kind of threat to, to Europeans uh, on the ter territorial side is Russia and we already spend almost four times what the Russians do on, on defence. So I mean how much of it is about the 2% and the levels of spending versus the way that we spend our money, the way that our uh, procurement, our forces and everything else are kind of organised? Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I mean, it, it, the way we spend the money is is ultimately uh, at least as, if not more important, you know, than the question of whether we spend two percent or two point one or one point eight or whatever it is. I mean, uh, absolutely. And and I think, um, you know, one one has to one has to acknowledge that the money that Europeans currently do spend on defense is a significant amount of money. When uh, you know this this export forum happened uh, in in conjunction with the NATO summit in Brussels a few weeks ago. When the German defense minister, the Turkish foreign minister, and the Polish foreign minister all together on the panel were asked what, what, what would they consider their key worry at this point, the German uh, defense minister said, well, it's, it's, 
you know, the ability of NATO to, to be united, to show solidarity, to be coherent. Uh, the uh, uh, Turkish uh, uh, colleague uh, said it's terrorism and the Polish uh, minister said it's Russia. So, so it shows you that there isn't really uh, a united uh, perception of, of the priorities uh, overall. All of these things are important, um, but there is a tendency for national governments uh, to focus on on their own priorities before they look towards what what could be an efficient way to work together multinationally with PESCO, with a new capability development plan, um, with a, a serious interest of the European Commission to make defense part of its prosperity agenda. Whether all of that is enough to actually alter that dynamic, which has been really a uh, something that, that stood in the way of greater progress before, whether that will now change. I mean, the jury is still out on that. But But if you point towards towards Russia. I mean, you know, I think an honest assessment uh, of, of Russian capability would be to say that the Russians now have the most capable military they've had since the end of the Cold War. I mean, that is, you know, this is a reform process that they are in, a military reform process, a military modernization process that's actually begun to deliver some results. That doesn't mean they're 10 foot tall. It just means in some areas uh, uh, have achieved quite significant uh, uh, strength, military strength. And to the question of how a Russia that is a, a more aggressive foreign policy actor than it used to be and that matches that behavior with more capable military forces. So I think that's a legitimate question to ask. I think if you look at the strategy documents that came out since the uh, illegal annexation of Crimea, you will see you will see that process unfold. Can we generate a shared perception of this issue across the EU, across the European member states of NATO? Um, and I would argue that threat perceptions are still uh, quite different. And, you know, the reality is that with different threat, threat perceptions do come different procurement priorities for defense. Uh, and you can see that if you look at, at some, of the, uh, uh, some of the items that, that people are looking at, you can see that in Central and Eastern European, uh, Europe, there is a faster reversal of the defense spending trend. They cut less, they, they increase more and at a faster clip and a faster pace than, than uh, uh, Western European countries. They have a greater focus in their procurement activity on, shall we say, uh, things uh, immediately associated with territorial defense, whereas uh, in, in Southern and, and, and Western uh, Europe, you see, you see slightly different, different priorities. And, and I think that lack of coherence, despite all the high-level uh, agreement, uh, remains an issue at this point. That was f fascinating um, on the on the capabilities front. Um, can we look briefly at the other two areas that you talked about? So um, on decision making, you were saying that there are kind of institutions that you know we're not starting from from nothing, but there there are kind of some still some blind spots in terms of the credibility of, of Europeans. Can you talk a bit more about that? I think you know I mean that is one issue from an EU angle if you look at it. I think you get the history or the, the recent history suggests that you can get action and activity when there is strong leadership coming from one or two member states. And and I mean, I know it might sound ironic, but in a situation where one of the most experienced military actors is leading the European Union, of course, talking about the United Kingdom, I think there is a risk that uh, even though we have all the processes in place, um, we might lack a little bit of, of impetus 
and impulse from within uh, from within this grouping that then remains uh, to actually uh, push forward. And I just wonder whether you know there is a risk of strategic decision making autonomy. I know it's a counterintuitive point, but perhaps strategic decision making autonomy actually being a little bit weaker uh, in the EU once the uh, United Kingdom leaves, uh, because it is quite useful to have that experienced bruiser, so to speak, uh, at the table uh, and and you know and and uh, provide expertise, provide opinion, provide experience. And I just wonder whether that um, uh, might turn into an unexpected uh, problem for for the rest of the EU member states. I think I would imagine a a further strengthening of um, command control structures uh, in a union framework with the e with the UK out of the EU and the transatlantic wing a link uh, looking looking weaker than than uh, before. So I would think um, on that side I wouldn't be too worried. So in practical um, but terms, I'd be worried about the will. What would the what would a strengthening of command and control structures look like? Well, I think I mean you know it's not there's nothing new about it. It's just it's just the ability to to run the operations. Um, uh, that uh, por form form part of the EU level of ambition without uh, without NATO without NATO assistance. So you would need to build up um, uh, the nucleus that's that's already there. This is where uh, the United States might actually like that um, and and see uh, that it gives them uh, partners and allies uh, that that can that can that can be a bigger part of the problem solving set rather than rather than just the. Uh, you know, a part of the part of the problem. So, so I think I, I would I would encourage a little more, um, you know, a little more uh, vigor in 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 thinking through um, what that piece of the puzzle might look like. And do you think that there's a danger that strategic autonomy is something which is used against the EU, uh, sorry, against the UK, um, rather than something that the UK is becomes part of? The danger. You know, results from what I would char characterize as an overly mechanical and legalistic approach to the security defense dimension of, of Brexit. And, and I think the danger is that instead of thinking about European security as uh, what the EU does and what member states and close partners do together, uh, I think there's a risk that we might um, end up with um, uh, rules and processes that make it hard for the UK to play its full potential role. I think there's a real psychological issue here that, that people need to overcome, uh, namely to think of the UK as possibly a more productive partner in that, in that uh, conversation outside of the EU than they were inside the EU. And I think that's an interesting uh, uh, problem that many people seem to find hard to to, to engage with, um, and and you know, alternative um, on, on the other side of the of the coin, of course, it also means uh, on the UK side accepting that um, if if they want to play uh, this this important role, they need to have to put they, they need to have to uh, put something on the table, um, including in financial terms, including in, in capability terms. It just seems to me that. We're not heading towards a constructive, you know, win-win situation, but we're, we're heading towards something um, that might make it difficult for the UK. Um, I understand all the arguments about, uh, you know, not changing the rules. And to me, it is, it is a strange position to say, well, we need to make sure that uh, the UK can't have 
you know, decision-making power outside of the EU. I think if the EU looks at, looks at its own decision-making autonomy in that particular relationship, I don't quite see why it can't structure its relations Norway, the United Kingdom, and other countries that uh, might be in NATO but not in the, in the EU in, in some time from now on. Uh, why it can't set up these relationships as, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis. I don't understand why we seem to think everything needs to be governed by the precisely by the same set of rules. You have decision-making autonomy. If you get to define the nature of the relationship, that doesn't mean all the relationships need to look exactly the same. Okay. So the, the third kind of basket, maybe we can end with that, is, is, is um, the defense industrial base. What do you think um, needs to happen there? Yeah, I mean, there is, of course, the perennial problem of the European defense industrial base being uh, very fragmented. Um, uh, there is certainly in some areas a demand for more for more consolidation. Um, there is probably, uh, again, a Brexit-related problem when, um, you know, for, for British defense industry, in market terms, the rest of the EU was never a big a big part uh, of of the export uh, landscape. But if you look a little bit deeper, actually, the British defense industry is intertwined with the rest uh, uh, of the EU defense industrial base. And I think again, you know, if we end up with rules that uh, make it harder um, for uh, these players to access the skills, the technology, uh, the, the intellectual property in whichever way, shape or form it might come um, uh, across, across that then uh, newly existing uh, uh, or, well, the, the UK being outside um, of, that, of that market. I think, I think that might create defense industrial disruption, that, that might create uh, you know, non-tariff barriers to innovation and trade uh, that would not be uh, beneficial uh, for the U for the European defense industrial base overall. So I think again the challenge lies in a conversation among Europeans where they where they bring their various strengths to the table and discuss um, what they are willing to give up in order to maintain that particular strength. If we take one example, um, future combat air, there are now uh, you know, at least two ideas for how, how one could move ahead. There's the Franco-German conversation, and now there's also a British conversation uh, that, uh, you know, became very visible at the Farnborough Air Show. And so you have these two ideas. The question now is, uh, can these uh, two exist uh, in parallel? Um, it probably can just, can just be done, um, but the, the, the real challenge will be to figure out the partnerships, you know, because it's expensive. Um, you have different centers of excellence in different uh, bits of the European defense industrial base. And how do you make these work together? And I think what it might require is for these different players to come together, look each other in the eye and say, OK, uh, strength, weaknesses and how they how they contribute to uh, meeting the demand that we've talked about earlier. Uh, then I think you can begin to form a coherent defense industrial whole in Europe where the, where the sum is actually bigger than, or sorry, where the whole is actually bigger than the sum of its part. And, and, uh, and I think it's interesting to, to, to think that the European Commission has uh, clocked onto this and, and is, putting, is trying to put in place political and, and financial incentives 
to encourage exactly that kind of conversation. And I think for the future, it will be interesting to see whether we will get a DG security and defense uh, in the commission or whether the European Defense Agency is beginning to play a, a bigger role in that, in, that, in that area. Where's the single point of entry for all of these discussions in the future? I think that, that remains to be seen, but uh, I think uh, it's something that we need to figure out if we want to address strategic autonomy across decision-making, across defense industry, and across military capabilities. Okay, well, that sounds like a, a pretty big agenda. Um, and as you say, it could take uh, quite a long time to, to really turn things around under those three baskets. But maybe just as a last question, if you were king for a day and could do three or four things now which would start to change the way that people thought about Europe immediately, what would they be? That's a very good question. I mean, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, 24 hours is is enough to really to really move the needle. But but I think um, if if we talked about about you know if we if we're thinking about immediate immediate priorities, um, you know, I think I would probably I would probably start um, with making sure that you know if if I had one day to define, let's just let's just take some. Thing small and doable. No, it's not even small and doable, but smaller than your overall ambition. I would list of PESCO projects, take everything off that list that doesn't uh, immediately uh, address a recognized uh, strategic capability shortfall in the European Capability Development Plan, replace it with something that does, and then ask member states to focus on that. That's something you could actually achieve in a day if you're working. So I'll, I'll do that and then uh, leave the rest for all these other many days that will still be needed to address this big agenda that we talked about. And what do you think the biggest uh, gaps are in terms of those PESCO projects? Well, I think, I think they, are, they go back to, to what we talked about. I mean, see, the, the, they go back to this long list of capabilities that we, that we went through. I mean, the, the problem is we know what they are. They, we even have them written up in these planning documents. And then if we look at if we look at then the projects that we came up with, they, they, they don't necessarily correspond to that. What we already know is the shortfall. So I think I would try and fix that. <laughs> That's one one little achievable thing. Okay. Um, and and I'd be if I if I were to be able to do that in one day, I'd, I'd go home happy after that day. Great, fantastic. Well, the longest journey starts with one small step, and uh, I think <laughs> hopefully this podcast was a step towards. Uh, <laughs> towards that. Um, thanks a lot, Bastian. It was fascinating uh, talking to you. Um, if you've enjoyed listening to podcasts, we'll put up links to some of Bastian's um, uh, recent writings at our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you have any comments on this series on European sovereignty, uh, please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Bastian Gigerich and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Harkenbrosch, and our editor is Katharina Botel-Atzinaro. Mm-hmm.